There's so much we can learn about ourselves when we think about trees. Did you know that in Psalm 1, God says you shall be like a tree? When we follow Jesus, it begins when we are like a tiny seed or a sapling, firmly planted and too weak to stand on its own. As we grow up in the truth, we send our roots down. They keep us fed and strong. But beware, becoming what God created us to be isn't always easy. There are bad forces that work against us, and it takes faith and discipline to get through them. But once you mature and discover your gifts, you grow fruit. Delicious fruit that you can share with everyone around you. And there's nothing more beautiful than watching how your life, which started out as a little seed, can multiply into the lives of others. This could be you, a majestic tree, going deep, growing wide, living tall, and bearing lots and lots of fruit. All right, I'm looking forward to some detoxification. It's going to be a great series after Easter. hope that you'll plan to join us for the book of 1 Corinthians. Uh, but before that, we are finishing up our series on spiritual formation, cultivating the Christian life today. And uh, by way of review, over the last three months together, it's hard to believe it's been three months since we started this, we've been going over what we call the 12 intentional rules of spiritual formation. And uh, here they are on the screen just as a reminder to you. These are some of the most important principles that you can learn and put into practice in your own spiritual life. And so here's what we've been encouraging you to do, uh, to plant your feet on solid ground or you'll be tossed around your whole life to embrace the seed of the gospel every day. It's the key to everything. Uh, To get to the root of your problem, or you will never change. To know who you are and whose you are. To learn how distinctively Christian change is unique and powerful. To practice the spiritual disciplines, or you will wither and burn out. Uh, To fight with spiritual weapons, or you will wage the wrong war. To discover your spiritual gift and find your purpose. Uh, To learn to love or the rest won't matter. Uh, To choose to forgive, or the bitterness will eat you alive. Uh, To be salt and light and make an impact. And finally, to share the gospel. It is this world's only hope. If you will practice these intentional rules, if these will be rules that you put into place in your own life, then the scripture says you'll be like a tree planted by the streams of living water with its roots going deep, growing wide, living tall, bearing lots and lots of fruit. The tree is God's ultimate object lesson for us all around as a picture for all of us of what a beautiful Christian life can and should look like. And so our vision here at NBC is just that. Over the next three years, we want to make disciples who are firmly planted, growing together, and made to multiply. We want to use this as our image for the next three years in our vision as a church. This is what we want to be about. This is why we exist. This is what we want to do. We want to make disciples who are firmly planted, growing together, and made to multiply. I want you to get used to those three phrases, so let's say it together. Firmly planted, growing together, made to multiply. That's you. That's our desire. That's God's desire for you to be like a majestic, beautiful tree in God's garden. That's what we're all about. That's exciting. You'll hear much more about our vision over the next weeks and months together. But there's one final lesson. And so turn with me to the end of your workbook. There's one final lesson. It's a concluding lesson that's simply just entitled, Fix Your Eyes on Jesus, Lest You Be Blinded by Yourself. 
See, there's this one crucial lesson. There's this one more lesson we have to take to heart today, and it's a lesson really about the ultimate seed. It's a lesson really about the ultimate tree. It's a lesson really about the the most fruit-bearing act in all of human history. Our text today is from John chapter 12. It's a text about Jesus that involves, appropriately, some trees. It feels perfect that you're here today with some palm branches in your hands as we finish up this series that's been all about trees. John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26 will be our text for today. If you have a copy of God's Word, flop it open to there or open up your Bible app and follow with me. We'll also have the words on the screen also. I want to read the text for you, and then we'll look at it afterward. Why don't we stand in honor of God's Word, if you're able, as we take a look at the Scriptures this morning. Let the one who has ears to hear, hear the word of the Lord. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, as it is written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first... His disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard that Jesus had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. We would like to see Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Anyone who loves their life will lose it while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. The message of uh, today is simply entitled, We Want to See Jesus. It comes right out of the text. We want to see Jesus. That is the whole goal of spiritual formation. We want to see Jesus. We want others to see Jesus in us, and we want to see Jesus in ourselves. But first, we must see him for ourselves. We want to see Jesus. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We come before you right now, standing in honor of the scriptures and in the name of your Son. Please bless our time in the Bible today. We pray that you would bless your people, open up our hearts and our ears and our eyes, that we might see Jesus and that ultimately, uh, because of our vision of him, that we would be so enraptured by him, beholding him, seeing his beauty, that others might begin to also see Jesus in us. We want to see Jesus. That's our prayer. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The context of the passage today is in the last week of Jesus' life. The passion is coming. Inky black clouds are on the horizon. Uh, Betrayal is being plotted and awaits in the near future. And in the midst of all of that evil scheming like a diamond in the rough is this beautiful story of the triumphal entry of our Lord. 
Uh, take a look at it again with me at those opening scriptures. You see the crowd is gathered here. And notice it says, see your king. Did you notice the word see? It's an optical term. It means to behold. It means to discern something visually with your eyes. It's the opposite of being blind. It's the ability to see. And so the question is, what do we see? What did they see? What can you see when you look at this text? Because unless you see, you will never be who God intends you to be. What do you see? Now, you know that this occurred during the great Passover feast, which was the time of year that the Jewish people remembered the Exodus, the great redemption from Egypt that God had performed. And during this time of year, they would come from far and away to enjoy fellowship and to enjoy celebration together as the people of God. It was a big, huge national party. Lots of people in town. Picture New Year's Eve, Times Square. Picture some big 4th of July celebration for the United States of America. This was their Independence Day celebration. They would all come to, uh, f- to have food and fun, and Jesus is heading into town with the rest of the crowd. Now, I want you to feel the emotion. I want you to feel the expectations. Feel the buzz in the air here, and, and just see if you can sense what's going on. Uh, do you know what it's like to root for your favorite sports team? Uh, this past Monday night, I had chosen Kansas to win the ultimate bracket this year. I was, I was transfixed on Kansas and the Jayhawks, and they, they, were, they were up to win the whole NCAA tournament this year, and th- there was great celebration before and afterwards for Kansas because of their victory, and so students were out there partying in the streets, and, and it was a time to celebrate because people get excited about Kansas basketball. People get excited about their heroes. People get excited about the people that they look up to. Now, here's what I want you to see, friends. 2,000 years ago, on Palm Sunday, I just want you to imagine that Jesus was like a sports team on a playoff run. And as he's entering into Jerusalem, hundreds and hundreds of fans came out to greet him. And these fans, uh, their their hopes and their their dreams, they were all wrapped up in this Jesus. And they, they really hoped that he would be the one to score a victory for them. Now, back then, not like us, they, they didn't bring out pom-poms and banners and, uh, you know, big foam fingers. Back then, they had objects, though, too, when they would celebrate. They had these things called palm branches. You've got one here today, right? Wave your palm branch for me. Yeah, just like that. Same thing. Now, you and I, we see palm branches, and you and I think tropical beaches. You and I think Hawaii. You and I, when we see palm branches, we think coconuts. That's not what they would think of. When they saw palm branches, when they thought about palm branches, what they would see What they would think of when they saw the palm branch was a very important symbol of national pride, a very important symbol of military victory for Israel, and a very important symbol of celebration. It was after the Greek empire was pushed out of Israel that they greeted greeted the the warriors uh, with palm branches. Judas Maccabeus and the boys came in after they they kicked out Antiochus and the rest of the Greek empire, and then they were greeted with palm branches in celebration. You might remember in the Old Testament, one of David's sons, who was was to be king, went on a parade on a a horse, and they, they put down palm branches for him. So palm branches have special military and political significance, and I want you to see that because you need to understand that all of their expectations, and uh, specifically uh, their political hopes and expectations were wrapped up in this Jesus. They wanted the Christ, they wanted the Messiah, they wanted the Messiah to come and rescue them. They wanted this Jesus to, to set them free. 
They, they were hoping that Jesus would come and, and, and take away their, what they thought was their greatest problem. And so for them, their greatest problem was Rome, the Roman occupation. They wanted this Messiah to come and, and kick the Roman Empire out of Israel. And so they granted him uh, much honor and celebration. This is the red carpet treatment as they say, Hosanna, which means save us. Save us from what? Save us from who? Save us from Rome. Save us from the Roman Empire. Save us from the legions. Do you see what's going on? Do you see what's happening in terms of their expectations and, and the milieu of Palm Sunday 2,000 years ago? And do you see what would happen if he doesn't meet their expectations and how they would quickly turn on him? See, these were what we call fans of Jesus, but they were not followers of Jesus. Uh, the people who greeted him with palm branches and shouting were fans, not followers. And I think the same kind of people exist today. I know because I was one. For the first 20 years of my life, I was a fan of Jesus. I had learned about him from a young age. I, I, I even owned a Bible. I never read it, but I had one. Maybe if you would have asked me if I believed in Jesus, I probably would have said, yeah. But the truth is, I was measuring that relationship by all of the wrong things. I had some friends who said they were Christians too. I, I would pray when I really got desperate. I knew just enough about Jesus to make me feel like I knew him. But looking back on those years, I'm not sure I really did. I think I was kidding others. I think I was kidding myself, but I was not kidding God. I was a fan, not a follower. And so at this point in my life, I have this fear that there's people out there like me. That's not a judgment. That's not a judgment whatsoever. It's just I have a fear that there's people out there that are missing out on all of the blessings of having a real relationship with Jesus, on actually being his follower. And that's what this whole series is all about. I, I, I said, what's the 12 most important lessons that I've really learned about following Jesus and put it in that workbook, thinking maybe I can help somebody that's like me who would want to follow him? And so just can I ask you an honest question? Are you a follower of Jesus or are you just a fan of Jesus? Now, the scripture that's being quoted here is from Zechariah the prophet. Hundreds and hundreds of years in advance, the prophet of God spoke this oracle of God, this, this supernatural prediction. Only the Bible can predict the future with accuracy. Take a look at the words of Zechariah chapter 9. Hundreds of years earlier, here's what the prophet wrote. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly. And riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Did you notice that word lowly right there? Isn't that an interesting choice of words to describe a coming king? Lowly? Don't you mean majestic and powerful and mighty? The word means humble and gentle. The book I've chosen to read this Lent is written by Dane Ortland. It's simply called gentle and lowly. I'm coming to the end of it. I highly recommend this book. It's fantastic. It's a great summary of the Puritan writings about the heart of Jesus, and it's just been uh, so, uh, so special to me. Get that book. It's a very good book. In the book, the author says there's only one place in the whole Bible that describes God's heart. 
There's only one place in the New Testament that describes the heart of Jesus, and it's in Matthew chapter 11. Maybe you're familiar with this passage. Jesus invites us and says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon me and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's that phrase, gentle and lowly. Out of all the possibilities that could have been chosen for Jesus to describe his own heart to us, his people, out of all of the things that he could have said about his heart, he chooses to say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. If Jesus had a website and there was an about me drop-down window, you'd click that and it would say, I am gentle and lowly in heart. The word gentle there means meek. It's used in this passage about the triumphal entry. Uh, the word means to, to, to not be harsh, to not be reactionary. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not easily exasperated. He's tender. He's gentle. He's the most understanding person in the whole universe. He's gentle. And it says he's lowly. That word just simply means humble. It is the opposite of ostentatious or proud. It means he's approachable, open, willing, welcoming accommodating, and understanding. Now, would you just think about that for a second? Christianity proclaims that we have a God who's gentle and lowly. We have a God who's humble. We don't often think about that attribute of God. Very often, we think he's omniscient, omnipotent, he's holy, he's just, he's all those other things, and that he is all those other things. But he's also humble. And perhaps the reason why we don't often speak about the humility of our God is because of the obvious implications it would have for our lives. Because if we serve a God who is humble, then the obvious implication for me is that I need to be humble too. We have a God who is humble, gentle, and lowly in heart. And he says, learn from me. Did you notice that? Come to me and learn from me. And so that's our first lesson. If we want to see Jesus, if we want to see him, then we must look to Jesus and learn, and learn about his heart, and learn about him. Look to Jesus and spend time with him, learning who he is. It's Holy Week. Every religion has their special calendar. Every religion has their special week. Every religion has their special days. This is our time. Will you take the time this week to look to Jesus and learn? And to spend time with your Lord and to learn about his gentle and humble heart. Amen. Ironically, sometimes even in spiritual formation and trying to be mature, I can be hindered by wanting so badly to be like Jesus that I start focusing in on myself again. But if I'm really going to become like Jesus, my focus should not really be on being like Jesus. Rather, my focus should be on being with Jesus. Do not focus on being like Jesus. Focus instead on being with Jesus. You become like the people that you spend time with, don't you? The scripture says, set your minds on things above where Christ is, to focus our attention on him, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Do you do that? Will you do that this week? Will you look to the Lord Jesus and learn? That's our first lesson today about seeing Jesus. Look to Jesus and learn. Let's go back to our text. As we continue uh, acknowledging uh, Palm Sunday here, can I just be honest with you as a pastor? 
Um, Palm Sunday is a really strange event in the life of the Lord Jesus. And I can be just totally be transparent with you by saying over the last 20 years, serving in the ministry, I don't, still don't quite know what to do with Palm Sunday. I know what to do with Christmas. I know how to celebrate Easter. But what exactly are we talking about when we talk about, what, what is this story exactly, this triumphal entry? Is this a celebration of all of Jesus' life or is this an introduction to his death? Is Palm Sunday a great worship service with a big crowd gathered around to sing praise to King Jesus? Or is this really an ignorant crowd that doesn't know what they're doing? Is this joyful or is this sad? Is this bitter or is this sweet? Is this crunchy or creamy? You know what I'm saying? Is this a joyful celebration or is this a funeral procession? And the answer is, the tension is found in the fact that it's both. Now, did Jesus come to save us? Hosanna, did Jesus come to save us? Yes. All right, you're awake, right? You can talk back to me. It's okay. Question number two, was Jesus the king of the Jews? Yes. Was Jesus the son of David? Yes. Is this a glorious fulfillment of prophecy? Yes. But did this crowd really know what was going on? Well, let's take a look at the next verse. John the disciple says, at first his disciples did not understand all this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Now, don't be too hard on them. If you were there, you wouldn't have got it either. But John is just acknowledging, saying, we didn't get this when it happened right in front of our eyes. It was only later when we started to connect the dots, it was only later that Jesus probably explained all this to them when he walked with them for those 40 days after the resurrection. It was only later that they realized this stuff was predicted. Look, Zechariah 9, it's all right there. It was only later till they really got this. But here, they just don't get it. A Messiah who will die? That doesn't seem right. And so Jesus clarifies a little bit. Drop down with me to verse 23, if you will. As the text goes on to say in private, Jesus says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Here we see the Lord Jesus Christ, the Messiah himself, is referring to himself as a seed. Did you notice that? Here's what Jesus is saying. Just like a seed is buried, I too will be buried. Just like a seed is planted, I too will be planted. Just like a seed bursts through the ground, I too will burst through the ground in resurrection. This is a picture of me. Every springtime is a picture of my work on your behalf. He's the ultimate model of spiritual formation for all of us. And then he comes to you and to me and he says, you see my life? You see everything I've done? Now follow me. He goes on to discuss in verse 31, just for clarification purposes, what he means by this. Now, he says, is the time for judgment on this world. Now, the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. 
John understands this, writing now his gospel, looking backward. And earlier on, in John chapter 3, he said something very similar. You might recall, John said, Jesus is going to be like that serpent that was lifted up in the wilderness. Do you remember that story from the book of Numbers? All the children of Israel got bit by snakes, and they were all poisoned. They were all thirsty. They were all dying. And God says to Moses, "Take take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and tell everybody to go look at this thing and live. And Jesus says, it's like that. All these people around are sick. All these people around are thirsty. All these people around are poisoned by sin. And I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to be lifted up just like that serpent. And I'm going to be the one that they look to. I'm going to be the one that they turn back to. I'm going to be the one that they see up there. And for everyone who looks with faith, they will live. They will be given eternal life. John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. This is the good news of the gospel, and this is our second lesson today about seeing Jesus. We also need to look to Jesus and live. This is the primary lesson that we get from this text, the primary lesson we get from Jesus' life. He offers us the gospel of eternal life. This is why Jesus came. He did not come simply to be a moral teacher. Following Jesus is not just about gaining information or having a model to follow. Primarily, Jesus is to be looked to as our Savior, the ultimate seed that was sown in the ground for you and for me. The Bible teaches that we were all sick with sin, that we've all been poisoned, that we all, in a sense, have been bitten by the great serpent, the devil himself. And the message here is the same message that it was back in the book of Numbers. Look to this Jesus and live. Look with faith and live. Look and live. That's the good news of the gospel. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the good news. Look and live. Now, Please listen to me, because I think this is very important, and this was the misunderstanding of the fans in the crowd that day, too. Following Jesus can be a wonderful experience in your life with many blessings untold. Jesus does add much fruitfulness and blessing to your life. I, I agree with that. But there is one very specific reason why he came, and it was not to save them from the Romans. And it was not to save me from my earthly troubles or my political enemies either. This, the primary reason why he came is to give me victory not over my political enemies, but over my spiritual enemy, over my spiritual problem, to give me victory over the penalty of sin. This is the good news of the gospel. I say this because you need to nail this down. If you think coming to Jesus, if somebody has told you that coming to Jesus is going to promise you some kind of tragedy-free life, that coming to Jesus is going to somehow protect you and it's going to guard your life and you're going to not have any more hurts in there or not have any financial troubles or you're not going to have enemies or sicknesses, if you think Jesus is going to put you in some kind of protective bubble so that nothing ever happens to you again, then when those things happen to you, and I didn't say if, I said when, when those things happen to you, because they will happen to you, rather than running to Jesus to find comfort and to find strength and to find a very present help in time of trouble, you won't come to him in those moments. You'll run away from him out of anger and bitterness to God, but it wasn't because of God's promise. It was because of your false expectations. This is the problem with the fans. They only saw Jesus as some sort of earthly savior, someone who could save them from their earthly trouble. They did not understand that he came to give victory over their greatest spiritual trouble, the penalty of sin. And so we have to be very clear about what he's promising us. Remember the words of Isaiah 45, verse 22. The prophet said this, Look unto me, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. This is his message. Look and live. 
If you've never placed your trust in Christ, I encourage you to do that today. And if you already have, remember rule number two, embrace the seed of the gospel every day. It's the key to everything. There's an old hymn writer which says it so well. He wrote, there is life for a look at the crucified one. There is life at this moment for thee. So look, sinner, look. Look and be saved. There is life at this moment for thee. Have you had a moment in your life where you have stopped and embraced the Savior for yourself? I encourage you to do that today. But for those of us who have already made that decision, for those of us who have already embraced this gospel, here Jesus pulls his closer followers in and explains to us a very important but stern word about what it means to be a disciple. Look with me at verse 25 again. Jesus pulls no punches. He says, anyone who loves their life will lose it. Well, anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Here is our Lord Jesus' great call to follow him in discipleship. And notice, there's a cost He says, if you want to follow me, then there is a cost. I promise you two things, eternal life and a cross to die on. Being a Christian, being a disciple, being a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ is not him pulling you close and saying, hey, listen, I have some doctrine for you to mentally assent to. No. Being a Christian is not him saying, I have a moral framework that you can use to live your life. No. Being a Christian is him coming to you and saying, follow me. You might lay down your life as well. And you need to be willing. It's easy to be part of the Christian culture where you think, you know, I kind of like going to church. I like the church scene. I like the music. I like the Christians that we kind of hang around the fire with. You know, we share values. It's a safe place. We We have similar social um, values. I like the cohesion. I like the fellowship. I like the community. You can be doing all that and not be a disciple because you can do all that without following Jesus. You know, back in the the Middle Ages, there's there's these ancient stories that that occurred during the Crusades. and, and And I heard about this interesting story about these soldiers that were baptized. And, and these soldiers, they would go down into the river and uh, the, the records say that some of them, as they were going down to be baptized, they would hold their hand and they would hold one sword out of the water as they were being baptized, symbolically as if to say, everything else is getting baptized here, but not this one part of my life. I'm keeping my sword, I'm keeping my arm above the water because Jesus can have everything else, but when it comes to this, I'm doing my own thing, just to be clear. And I think that's a picture of me. I think that's a picture of all of us. We're tempted to hold something back from God in our discipleship, aren't we? We're tempted to fill in this blank. We say, Lord, here am I, except my fill in the blank. Here am I, except my sword. Here am I, except my alcohol. Here am I, except my marijuana. Here am I, except for my porn problem. Here am I, except for my angry outbursts at my spouse. Here am I, except for I'm not going to put in the hours that my employer says I should put in. Here am I, except fill in the blank. But the Lord Jesus Christ is worthy of all. 
This is why the worship team sang earlier, above all else, tune my heart to sing thy praise. And so this is our next lesson. As we see Jesus and as we look to Jesus, we must remember who Jesus is. We must look to Jesus as Lord. For Jesus to be the Lord, that means he's my boss. And if you're in a partnership with God, guess who the senior partner is going to be? You know, maybe today you need to surrender some area. Maybe today is the day where you say, you know what, you haven't been Lord in this area. Sometimes uh, my wife and I, we like to have people over the house, and that requires preparation. So sometimes what I do, if I'm really short on time, which happens a lot, when people come over, what I do is 15 minutes before they get there, I quickly tidy up. How many of you do this? I, I gather up all of the mess, and I find one room upstairs, and everything goes in that one room, and I lock the door. If I could put yellow caution tape, like the police tape, in front of that room, I would put that in front of the door so that nobody could go in that one room, and people are welcome to come in my house and look all over the place, but you may not go in that one room. That's the message there, right? That's where the mess is in. And sometimes I think that's what I try to do with Jesus. I, I say to God, listen, all of the rooms of my life, you're free to go around in. It's all ready for you. But there's this one room, don't go in that room, okay? That's my private stuff. That's my personal stuff. And so what is that for you right now? Maybe it's your finances, or maybe it's your relationships, or maybe it's your ambitions. What is that area in your life that you're, you're withholding from God? Because Jesus here asks his disciples, and he asks his followers, and he asks you and me to surrender everything because he's worthy of nothing less, because he's worthy of all. So how do we do that? Because you and I both know it's not easy, right? So how... How do we miss that? How, how come we hold back? And I think, I think it's important as we conclude this spiritual formation series to recognize something, that in following Christ, we have to focus not so much on the gifts, but, but on the giver. I love the way Kevin DeYoung says it in, in his book, The Whole in Our Holiness. He says this, what we must always remember that in seeking after holiness, we are not so much seeking after a thing as we are seeking a person. See, this is the biblical recipe for sanctification. This is, how, this is how we pursue spiritual formation. It's not by hitting the try harder button. How many of you figured out the try harder button doesn't work? It's like that button on the elevator. They've like disconnected it. It doesn't work. You can push that a thousand times. Keep pushing the try harder button and you'll end up like the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven. The things I wanna do, I don't do. The things I don't do, I, don't, I do do. The try harder button is broken. If, you, if the try harder button worked, then there's no reason why Jesus had to come. We need a savior. And so we have to get past the, the human will into this realm in our soul that theologians call the affections. And we have to remember something that Thomas Chalmers said, and, and, and I'll get to that in a second, but the fourth point is very important. We need to look to Jesus and love. He needs to be our first Love. See, St. Augustine was right. He said, the root of all of my sin is a disordered love. I'm loving something too much that I shouldn't be loving, or I'm not loving something that I should be loving. And that's, that's, that's where I need to get it right. Do, do you remember Boris Becker? This is a little bit dated, but he was a tennis star back in the day. When he was at the top, the top of his game, the top of the tennis world, do you know he almost killed himself? 
Boris Becker almost committed suicide. Why? You're Boris Becker. Here's what he said. Take a look. He said, I had won Wimbledon twice before. Once as the youngest player, I was rich. I had all the material possessions I needed. It's the old song of movie stars and pop stars who commit suicide. They have everything, and yet they are so unhappy. And then he says, I had no inner peace. This is what happens when we push God out of our lives and we love something more than God. No matter what we accomplish, when we push God out of our lives, it's like drinking poison. Nothing's going to satisfy our thirst. We're dying of thirst. I read stories like this all the time. Stories of successful people, people you would envy. And yet when they get to the top, they say, you know what, Dave, my ladder was leaning against the wrong building. There's nothing up here. It's empty. And the problem is they put God out of their life. And when you forsake the spring of living water and dig out for yourself broken cisterns that don't hold water, it doesn't satisfy Without him, I'm never going to be satisfied in my professional career. I'm not going to be satisfied in my marriage. I'm not going to be satisfied in, in any kind of job that I have. I'm not going to be satisfied in anything if I cut God out of that. It's never going to be enough. It's never going to be enough. Uh, Blaise Pascal said it so well. He said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person. And it can never be filled by any created thing. It can only be filled by God, made known through Jesus Christ. See, this is why we need to break the desire in our soul by showing our souls a new and better and greater desire. This is what theologians call the expulsive power of a new affection. And here's why we're not flourishing. Here's why we're not bearing fruit, really. This is the root of the problem. We have other affections in our heart that have taken our heart, and we haven't gotten to the root of our problems because we don't see the expulsive power of a new affection. We don't see the beauty of Jesus Christ. Let me try to illustrate. True story, there was a young man who was addicted to cigarettes. He loved smoking. He would smoke on every break, more than a pack a day. He just, he said, you know what, if it was healthy, I would still smoke today. He just loved smoking. But eventually, he stopped. You say, how did he stop? He said, I couldn't stop it by willpower. He said, I would tell myself, stop it, stop it, stop it. I tried the gum, I tried the patch, I tried everything. Nothing worked. I mean, the, willpower doesn't do it. Try harder button does not work. They put the warnings right on the pack, right? It's like, this causes cancer. The big pictures of black lungs, like donkey teeth on the pack. He's like, give me one of those. That, that's not doing it. Just saying no doesn't work. Just saying stop it doesn't do it. So how'd you stop? Here's what he said. He said, the reason why I stopped is because I met a girl. And when I met this girl, she goes, you're stinky. <laughs> he goes, I'm stinky? He goes, yeah, you're stinky. He goes, I don't even smell it. Like, I didn't even smell it anymore. I just smoked all the time. I did not smell it. But I like this girl, and this girl says I'm stinky. And so sure enough, because he loved this girl, because he wanted this girl, he chucked the cigarettes, and he stopped. And he's been free for decades, and he says the reason why... I was able to stop smoking is because I found something that I loved more than the cigarettes. That's exactly the principle I'm trying to teach here today. That is the, that is the key to the spiritual life. 
If we want to mortify sin, if we want to kill sin, the only way to grow spiritually, the only way to be sanctified, the only way to really have victory in those areas is we have to have the expulsive power of a new affection in our hearts. The whole reason I fall into temptation is because I no longer am transfixed by the beauty of Jesus Christ. I don't see that he's so much better than whatever is tempting me. I don't see it in that moment. And so what I do is I sacrifice true beauty for some pale imitation, and so do you. See, when Jesus says, give up your life, he's saying, why don't you trade the tin and get some gold? He's saying, why don't you trade walking on sand and go stand on a rock? This is what the Lord Jesus offers us. He's the most beautiful tree in all of the world. He's the seed that was promised in the Garden of Eden. Isaiah chapter 53 says he's like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He's the root and the descendant of David. He's a shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. He's the true and greater Israel. He's the fig tree. He's the olive tree. He's the most beautiful tree in the universe. This is who Jesus is. Are you drawn to him in worship? Do you love him? That's how you grow spiritually. You worship him. You focus on him. You meditate on him until your heart focuses on him more than whatever else your heart desires in the flesh. This is what the war is talking about in Galatians 5. Paul says there's this war in your heart, a war between the flesh and a war between the Holy Spirit. And he says the spirit uh, is, is warring against the flesh and the spirit has desires. In Galatians chapter 5, it says that the spirit desires Jesus. The Spirit yearns for Jesus and adores Jesus. John 15, 26, the Spirit lives to testify about Jesus. The Spirit lives to glorify Jesus. John 16, verse 14, the Holy Spirit is always saying to you and me, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he lovely? He's full of grace and truth. Look at him. Look at Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. See all of his virtues. See all of his perfections. See all of his beauties there in perfect alignment. Isn't he lovely? You see how he's gentle, but he's not soft. You see how he's bold, but he's not overbearing. You see how he's the perfect balance of both grace and truth. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look at Jesus. Look to Jesus and learn. Look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus as Lord. And look to Jesus and love Jesus. May we be about this business this holy week. May we be in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's worthy. Just saying no, friends, won't get us there. We must say yes to Jesus Christ. Fixing our eyes on him. That is the most important, I'm not, I'm not overstating this, that is the most important key to your spiritual growth. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. If you'll do that, you'll be like a tree planted by the streams of living water, going deep, growing wide, living tall, bearing lots and lots of fruit. A church full of people fixing their eyes of G on Jesus will be a Church full of disciples, full of followers who are firmly planted, growing together, and made to multiply. Can you imagine a church like that? Full of people that are firmly planted, growing together, made to multiply. Let's be that church. Look to Jesus and learn. Look to Jesus and live. Look to Jesus as Lord. Look to Jesus and love. 
I wanna close with a poem. I came across this fascinating poem. It was a couple hundred years old, and it just talks about the beauty and the majesty of Jesus Christ pictured in a tree. As the worship team comes, I'll read this poem to you. It's just simply entitled, Jesus Christ, the Apple Tree. Let these words fall on your ears this morning as we close. It says, the tree of life my soul hath seen, laden with fruit and always green. The trees of nature fruitless be compared with Christ, the apple tree. His beauty doth all things excel. By faith I know but never can tell the glory which I now can see in Jesus Christ, the apple tree. For happiness I long have sought and pleasure dearly I have bought. I missed of all, but now I see tis found in Christ, the apple tree. I'm weary with my former toil. Here I will sit and rest a while. Under the shadow I will be of Jesus Christ, the apple tree. With great delight I'll make my stay. There's none shall fright my soul away. Among the sons of men I see there's none like Christ, the apple tree. I'll sit and eat this fruit divine. It cheers my heart like spiritual wine. And now this fruit is sweet to me that grows on Christ, the apple tree. This fruit doth make my soul to thrive. It keeps my dying faith alive, which makes my soul in haste to be with Jesus Christ, the apple tree. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for revealing to us your son for showing us the most beautiful tree in all of the universe. Thank you for sending him that root from Jesse, that tender shoot out of dry ground. For those of us who know that our lives today are not really firmly planted and we're not really rooted in him, may we be motivated in a new way to turn from our sin and embrace your ways. Help us to send our roots deep into the wisdom of your word so that our lives might grow to reflect the beauty of your glory. Help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We worship and we praise him today. And we ask you that you would conform us to Him, his image. And today we just simply pray we want to see Jesus. We want others to see him in us. And we want to see him for ourselves. So open our eyes, we pray. In his name. Amen.